Welcome back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and we're currently in Reno, Nevada for the Wild West Vet Show, where we'll be sitting down with this session's speakers to get the inside track on their lectures, learn all the tips and tricks that you can put into practice immediately if you were not able to come out and join us for the show. And today, I am so excited to have this conversation. I'm interviewing my very first technician guest, and I can't think of a better person in the world to introduce you guys to than Miss Courtney Waxman. Miss Courtney, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Becky. I'm excited. I'm excited, one, because you're a technician, two, because you're one of my most favorite people in the world, and three, you're absolutely brilliant. So you've got several great sessions out here at Wild West, but before we get into all of that, just tell me a little bit about your background, help all of our listeners kind of know where you came from, how long have you been a tech, where are you working now? Sure. So I became a credentialed veterinary technician in Arizona back in 2009 after graduating from a community college. And I've been practicing in the private emergency specialty field for about 12 or 13 years now. And in 2017, I got my veterinary technician specialty in emergency and critical care designation. And ever since doing that, I've had a lot more opportunities to speak publicly, lecture and share my knowledge and my passion about emergency and critical care for technicians. And I was also able to transition from primarily working in clinical practice to academia, where I'm currently an instructor for Purdue University's veterinary nurse program. And that's my primary full-time job. I still get to have my hands wet and working on the floor in the ICU with the teaching hospital and having the resources available in academia has been really rewarding and being more involved with teaching and kind of grooming the next population and, and generation of techs is really great. Yeah, and there's, I think they're super lucky to have you. Um, I know a few years ago we lectured together at a conference and I had one of one of the people tell me that we were tied for energy <laughs> in, in the they were, they said my two favorite speakers, they couldn't decide between the two of us and that we spoke very much the same. We were very similar. And I was really excited to tell you that and to get that news back to you and say like, listen, you're doing amazing things out there. You've got people that's tooting my own horn a lot too, but I mean, you're doing amazing things out there. You're igniting passion. You're making ripples. And you know, I, I think it's important that we have all members of the veterinary profession out there spreading their passion, right? And yeah. and so, you know, of course, I'm singing the passions of veterinary technicians, but, you know, you have a passion in emergency and critical care on whatever level, right? Yeah. And because of this passion, you're out there giving the best education to up-and-coming technicians and then folks who are out at, like, a conference where are here today. Yeah, and it's so rewarding to have that positive feedback and hear that someone learn something from you and that right. they got excited or inspired from something you said or something you taught them, it's incredibly rewarding. That's right, because honestly, it, it, it's it's one thing to know it, it's one thing to say it, it's another to teach it. And, and it takes really special people to teach, and so you are absolutely one of those amazing special people. I'm excited to not only call you a friend, but again, to have you here specifically today for this podcast, we're talking about your lecture on traumatic brain injuries, right? So I was interested in this, and, and you mentioned head trauma as the most common form of TBI or traumatic brain injury, but you also list off uh, some other possible causes that maybe we don't think initially about causing TBI, right? Yeah, so when we think about our veterinary patients, it's in the name of the disease process, trauma, traumatic brain injury. So there has to be an inciting traumatic event. And what that traumatic event is, there's a wide scope of what that can be. We typically think of maybe a blunt force trauma or um, direct blow to the head or the neck area, but it can also be from any kind of traumatic dog bite wounds or other animal attacks coming from Arizona. We had a lot of coyotes and hyenas. We also think about animals falling 
falling from a height or a high-rise syndrome and landing in some way with the head or neck involved. Unfortunately, we also have to deal with potential abuse um, and abuse situations in veterinary medicine and that those are probably the, the multiple different traumas. You can maybe do a hit by car when you think about it, you have an animal restrained or in your vehicle and if you have an accident, they're going to be bobbled and bounced around in the car just like you are. And so besides head trauma itself, there's a secondary form of traumatic brain injury that is more systemic and it's kind of the sequelae of events that happened after that initial impactful head traumatic event and what happens in the body, how the body responds and how we can try and identify and aggressively manage it so that it doesn't have any kind of long-term negative consequence. It, you know, I think a lot of times when we're dealing with trauma, there's like a whole lot of different things to deal with and, and we're kind of trying to sort through the different things in, in the most emergent of all of them. And when a patient presents with a TBI from trauma, often, you know, we have these other presenting traumas that we are sifting through. And so where does that head trauma come in the lineup when we're dealing with, you know, multiple traumas in our patients? Yeah, so, I mean, the neurological system in general is part of our primary survey. We want to assess the cardiovascular, respiratory, and neuro right off the bat. So it is high up there because of that reason. But at the same time, when we have trauma and we have a lot of extra cranial injury, so something else systemic with the body, like severe hemorrhage, maybe something with the lungs where you have a pneumothorax or a flail chest, or you're having issues with those other body systems, you're having circulatory collapse from the hemorrhage, you're having decrease in respiratory ability from a pneumothorax, you have to address those issues as well and that in doing that you can then prioritize the brain and the neurological system. So it definitely comes into play having a good triage process and plan. I'm focusing on the brain, heart, lungs, those major body systems and then kind of seeing how your patient responds and kind of going from there. So, you know, when we have all of our other body systems are stable and we know there is a traumatic brain injury present, what are some things that we're going to, you know, look for to determine how emergent that brain injury is to deal with in the moment? So uh, what you're going to want to focus on first is an overall global patient assessment. So again, looking at everything as a whole, making sure those other systems are stable, and then really honing in and focusing on the neurological assessment. And when you think of that, I think most people think about uh, mentation status or an animal's level of consciousness first and foremost, but there are other parts of the neurological assessment too that include things like their ability to ambulate, what their breathing pattern is like, how their pupils are positioned and what their response is and really looking at all of those other factors as well, not just what their mentation or level of consciousness is. And I think that's such an important aspect, right? We get really caught up, especially in emergent situations and just trying to check boxes off, right? Yeah. And say, this is good, this is good, this is not, this is what we have to do. When we have these cases come into general practice and we know, look, this this is out of my hands, this is going to either be uh, more than likely, right, like a neuro referral. What are the major things we can be doing in general practice and how within general practice do we best stabilize these cases for the best patient outcomes, you know, immediately so that they can be transferred and they can be further worked up? Yeah. So first and foremost, a great thing to do is provide oxygen. The brain really likes oxygen. It responds very well to it. It helps improve the oxygen demand that the brain has to function. Something else is to try and get some venous access uh, so that we can start stabilization therapies like some fluid resuscitation, especially if they're having a really bad hemorrhage or they're hemodynamically unstable and trying to manage or, or monitor what a potential increase in intracranial pressure could be. So they could be getting some cerebral edema 
And when you have that, you get a very narrow window of time before the edema is profound enough where it's going to affect your intracranial pressure and your cerebral blood flow. So we want to maybe use some osmotic or hyperosmolar agents like hepatotic saline or mannitol to try and address that and decrease the chance of that developing or happening. And again, trying to stabilize any kind of extracranial injury, so again, hemorrhage or a pneumothorax or really in bad invasive wounds, any kind of penetrating trauma as much as you can is the most important. What should we not do before we send them on? A big thing, a big shift uh, within the Brain Trauma Foundation and with neurological disease in general is there used to be a, a really big push to use corticosteroids to help decrease any kind of potential brain inflammation. And what they have found is that there's really a lack of supporting evidence that it actually has any kind of beneficial effect and that there are studies on the human literature side that show that administering steroids to a traumatic brain injury patient increases the chance of mortality. And so it is no longer recommended. And this is probably relatively new developed within within maybe five or six years, um, which historically we it's been kind of part of a standard of care. That's one thing we definitely don't want to do. Something else is to avoid any kind of excessive head or neck manipulation. So this also comes into play, not only when handling and stabilizing the patient, but also transporting them. So you don't want to maneuver, bend, or apply any kind of pressure to the neck area. If you're trying to get blood samples to do diagnostic workup, you want to avoid the jugular vein and occluding that jugular vein, which could cause an increase in pressure. Really just being conscious, keeping an animal kind of on a flat surface, something like a stretcher, a gurney, even like one of those hard heating pads that you can have and yeah. have just that flat surface to help with transportation is is really key. I think those are the big ones. I, the only thing I can think of is maybe to, to not withhold pain medication. There's been okay. some discussion and a shift in kind of mentality within the critical care world that um, we used to withhold pain medication um, because it would alter the animal's mentation or right. their neurological state. And actually what we're finding as we do more research is that pain can mask clinical signs, true clinical signs. When the animal's pain, they're not going to be their true status. And so when we withhold that pain medication from them, we're having them in a, a less ideal state. So we definitely want to, I mean, having a brain injury, having bopped in the head or punctures or wounds or any, the extent of the trauma that there is, is a painful experience and that we should be alleviating that pain for our patients. Um, one, for quality of life and also just to have a better neurological assessment. What are your favorite go-to pain relievers when we are concerned about a TBI? Uh, I, my go-to is always opioids. They're the best and most potent drug class to use and they have a lot of different options. Some things to take into consideration is maybe the route of administration. Sometimes opioids can cause excessive panting. And when we have a potentially respiratory compromise from a TBI, we want to minimize that as much as possible. But really, any opioid would be great. I think our alpha-2s as well, like dexmedetomidine or xylazine, are a good option. There also used to be some literature out there concerning ketamine, that ketamine can cause an increase in intracranial pressure, and that has kind of been debunked as well. That And ketamine is a good option for pain relief as well. That's, I mean, it's great to know, right, because the opioid situation a little bit scary for a lot of us, and we want to make sure we're keeping our patients comfortable. We want to make sure that we are giving them the best opportunity. But like you said, you know, their quality of life is a major concern as well. And I appreciate you kind of bringing forth some of that, those newer studies and that new information. You know, I always talk about the fact that, like, it's wonderful when veterinarians and veterinary professionals can come out to these types of conferences and get the most up-to-date knowledge and get the most up-to-date information. But the truth of the matter is, is most of them can't. Yeah. And so I think that's the importance of being able to have these conversations 
conversations and, and get these kind of conversations out there so that people who maybe don't have this small window of time to come and listen to you say this really inspiring and, and important information can go back and say, oh, you know, this is important. Let me look this up and let me read these studies because I want to be doing best practices and I want to set my, my patients up for success. Yeah. You know, one thing I want to go back to a little bit is those, the secondary brain injuries. You know, I think this is an area where we can gain a lot more knowledge, grow our knowledge, you know, things like cardiopulmonary arrest and, and hyperthermias and such that can result in these secondary traumas. Talk a little bit more about that and what we might be overlooking in practice and how we could really be increasing our best practices to be assessing the brain stability after these secondary type events. Yeah, so I think first and foremost, when we think about a secondary brain injury, again, we're talking about systemic consequences that can happen. And the biggest thing that we want to make sure that we can maintain is blood pressure because blood pressure is vitally important to have good cerebral perfusion pressure. So making sure that our brain and blood flow and circulation is all appropriate. And when we have fluctuations in our blood pressure, specifically the mean um, blood pressure, then we have risk of having an increase in or a decrease in intracranial pressure. And we, we want to avoid that. The brain has a very finite amount of space in our skull. And we want to make sure everything is perfusing and circulating appropriately. Something else that we want to do is have pretty narrow window of monitoring our glucose levels and our temperature. Glucose is the body's primary energy source is required for all cells to function and maintain normal status. And so when we get these fluctuations of either hypo or hyperglycemia, we get out of those normal ranges, we can have some negative consequences as well. And then with our temperature, the brain's thermoregulatory set point is in the brain. And we have, again, a kind of a narrow margin or window of what that normal is. And for our brain patients, we actually don't mind if they ride a little bit cooler because when you have a cooler temperature, you're body's metabolic rate and the metabolic demand to do all these essential functions to live goes down and that lets our brain kind of rest and restore and recuperate as we're working through the trauma aspect and the secondary injuries. Yeah, and I think that that's so important and it's such a good point. Um, sometimes being a little bit out of the parameters is actually okay and we can yeah. be calm. And I think all of us can attest to how glucose affects or lack of glucose affects our brain and we have to be thinking about our patients very very similarly. And you know, one thing I think we, we need to think about as well um, is just that emotional component. TBIs just, in my experience, can be really emotionally difficult for the client and actually even for the veterinary team, right? When we see yeah. these come in, especially if we're outside of the scope of, of neurology or, or maybe emergency where we're maybe more acclimated to seeing some of these traumas, a lot of these can be really hard for, for again, clients and staff. Can you talk a little bit about resiliency building around this? Yeah, so the thing that I try to kind of preach, if you were to speak, is that we need time and patience. It takes time for these patients to resolve and respond to treatment and that they're not going to be back to 100% in a short period of time and that we need to have that patience and have good counseling and understand that everything that we're doing is for the best interest of the patient and that we just need to know that it's not going to be an immediate result uh, like some other things like a toxin ingestion you immediately decontaminate or a respiratory distress patient, you provide oxygen and they get better. Yeah. This is gonna take a little bit more time to do that. But we do have highly successful statistics about patients going home and recovering. Um, when we do rapid recognition and early intervention, it's just taking that time for the body to, to resilient 
itself. Yeah. And just helping the staff and the clients understand that. I guess it's important. These yeah. these are hard ones, right? You know, it's difficult to see your patients so down and out. And, and I know TBIs can be that way, especially then too, when you've got so many other things going on and you're able to get in front of those quickly. And like you said, they have a really like a, a quick improvement that's very visual and very tactile and we see it. And then we have these other areas that maybe are, are lagging behind. It can really feel discouraging. And yeah. um, I think it's an important thing to remember your staff when it comes to these, especially within general practice where they're maybe not as used to seeing these types of really just devastating injuries. Um, yeah, it definitely is. And it's important to, to know that they can get better and they will get better and that, you know, you are, especially as technicians, pretty heavily involved with these cases because yeah. they are somewhat critical and that you have to be, you know, really on top of things and make sure that you're not missing something. And so it can be emotionally and physically draining to to put all of this effort in and you're still not seeing a response as quickly as, as you would like to or as you're used to with other disease processes, but that the response will come um, if given enough time. And maybe even more rewarding once it finally does, it right? It really is. Yeah. I have a great case. His name is Milo. He is, uh, he was a cat uh, that was missing for 22 days and or after <gasps> cat returned home after 22 days. Was he with Otis? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, returned home um, after 22 days. The owners noticed that he was having a little bit of increase in his respiratory rate and effort, so they immediately brought him to emergency clinic. It was like 10 o'clock at night. And we go through our workup and we see, um, do some x-rays and he has a diaphragmatic hernia. And there's no external trauma. Um, and we don't know that, uh, can't find any evidence. Uh, he was middle aged, so we don't know if this has been congenital and sure. just undiagnosed. Uh, but anyways, we take him to surgery so that we can correct his diaphragmatic hernia and he arrests in the perianesthetic uh, period. We got him back. We did CPR for, I think, about a minute and a half. Very prompt, very, very quick resuscitation. Uh, we were able to complete the surgical procedure. It went on without a hitch. Uh, and he suffered a secondary brain injury because he was, quote unquote, dead for a minute and a half. He had no oxygen, no source to his brain for that time. Yeah. And so he was in our ICU for about seven days. And it was a very slow progress. He was blind for a total of two weeks. Vision eventually returned. Um, he was very weak and ataxic, um, but in a couple of days, he was able to use the litter box, and he was able to eat and drink ravenously. Hunger, like appetite, was not a problem, and it's just a great example of that. Not only are these do these patients and and disease processes take time but that they can't have a positive patient outcome and that an animal's quality of life is drastically different than our quality of life. Yeah. Um, animals don't have to have a job or right. cook or go to school or have kids and be part of all of these life events that humans do. Yeah. And so if they can eat and drink and pee and poop, they get snuggles and love all day. And yeah. he, um, after, I think it was a total of three to four weeks, he, we discharged him after seven days, but after three to four weeks, he had made a full recovery back 100% to himself. And, and that, that's an important coaching moment for the client who's looking at you to say, is my pet ever going to be the same? Am I doing the right thing, keeping them alive through this? Because it, they're all of a sudden really thinking about quality of life. And that's an important coachable, teachable moment, right? They are. And it's, and I include this lecture um, or this case in all of my um, neuro-related lectures. And I always ask the audience, what do you think of this quality of life? And a majority of them say, are shaking their head and saying, no, it's poor. And Let them go. It's yeah. really not. And, and you have to have an owner that's committed. You have to have an owner and you have to have that conversation and make it yeah. a client education opportunity that this is going to take time, but it absolutely can go back to normal. Yeah. Um, and then if you have the, the patience and the ability to make some accommodations during that time, you can have a really, really successful. And so often if we set them up for that in the beginning, then mm -hmm. they're willing to ride that through. 
If you're already reading Clinician's Brief, why not get credit for it? Get affordable, race-approved CE from Clinician's Brief content you trust without leaving your desk. You can track your earned hours, receipts, and certificates and see the latest available courses at cliniciansbrief.com backslash CE. Get started today. Okay, now no pressure here because this is our keep it brief segment. We rarely keep it brief, so don't worry too much about that. I want to know your top five do's and don'ts when it comes to presenting TBIs in the clinic. Sure. Uh, We talked about some of these already. So for my do's, provide oxygen. The brain loves oxygen. It's essential to maintain good perfusion, good cerebral function. We want to do a complete neuroassessment as you get them stabilized and start to go through that process. Don't just focus on neurologic disease or mentation level consciousness, look at the patient as a whole. You need to do a whole body evaluation and make sure that you're not going to have some of these secondary brain injury effects that can happen and you're not just focusing on one body system. Something else that's important, I would say the two most important vital signs to monitor is related to heart rate and blood pressure. Again, like we said, we need blood pressure to be maintained within a a normal range uh, because we have a narrow window that if we get out of that, we have changes in our cerebral perfusion pressure. Um, But also heart rate. Um, Heart rate can be... uh, and blood pressure combined, there's a relationship that can be indicative of increasing intracranial pressure. And increasing intracranial pressure is life-threatening. And so when you have a patient uh, that becomes bradycardic and hypertensive, which is known as Cushing's reflex, not related to the adrenal Cushing's disease, um, that's a sign that there's some potentially increased intracranial pressure and we have to intervene immediately. So heart rate and blood pressure are super important patient parameters in relation to what the brain is doing. Another do is to keep a patient elevated slightly. Anywhere from 15 to 30 degrees helps kind of have that brain drainage down from the brain um, to the rest of the body. But you need to be careful when you elevate, like I said earlier, with transportation, keeping things on a flat surface. I know we as technicians love to be really involved with patient and nursing care and make sure our patient's comfortable. And I do what I call a rolly towel bed, where I roll a towel in a little circle. Any kind of pressure on that head or neck is going to affect the blood flow there. So you want to keep it flat. And then again, the last is do is, is be patient and know that there can be successful outcomes. It's just going to take time. Another thing to do uh, for traumatic brain injury patients is to monitor their neurological status by using something called the modified Glasgow Coma Scale. This is modified from human medicine and provides an objective way to assess neurologic function, and it's a way that you can monitor trends in your patients. It has also been shown in human medicine to be a prognostic indicator, so providing a numbered score, uh, lower numbers have a worse prognosis and higher numbers have a better. And again, having that as part of a treatment sheet, having it aligned as an order um, to monitor trends, but you want to look at what the level of consciousness is of the patient, what their brainstem reflexes are, and what their ability to to ambulate is. So it's a really great assessment tool that we can use for these patients. In terms of uh, five don'ts to do, uh, I said this earlier, don't withhold pain medication. Treat pain uh, so that you can better, more appropriately evaluate uh, the neurological status. If you have the ability to consult with a neurologist, there are neurologists who have preferred drugs choices for what that pain relief looks like, but they do still provide pain relief. So it's just having that conversation and that relationship to find out what is best. We talked about not excessively manipulating the head and neck, not doing any kind of jugular venipuncture, keeping things flat, calm as much as we can. Something else is that when we are 
monitoring our patients and our vital signs, again, letting them ride a little bit low with their temperature to give that brain some time to rest and restore. And our general rule of thumb is that until they start to shiver, do not actively warm them. It's something called a permissive hypothermia, that we're allowing them to ride a little bit low, allowing their brain's metabolic rate to go down. Once they start to shiver, that metabolic rate goes up, and so we need to intervene at that point. But until then, let them kind of rest and restore. And then the last big don't is, again, not to use any kind of steroids. Um, so historically, traditionally, this has been used, but as more evidence and research goes into traumatic brain injury treatment and with the Brain Trauma Foundation, it is no longer recommended or advised because it has been associated with an increased mortality. And the mortality in the human studies is somewhat delayed, like two weeks out from being treated, so you won't see something maybe immediately a negative consequence in hospital, but it has been shown, so it's no longer recommended. That's scarier, right? Because then we might not be attributing it necessarily, and we might not be pinpointing what's causing it. So it's really, I I think that's so fascinating, and I love that you're out there helping us all know the latest and greatest when it comes to treating these patients, making sure the best patient outcomes. I could talk to you about this all day long. I'm going to be in your lectures if I get a chance to come by tomorrow and listen to even more of your brilliance, but for now, I have to say thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being my first technician interview. Thank you and for having me. I think we're going to have you back for sure. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant, Michelle Moncrez.